The problem with history, or I would say the study of history, is, is twofold. <laughs> One is that the way things happened in the past is different from the way things are in the present. So you kind of got to get back and figure out what was it like back then. Um, the next thing, when we're studying church history, you also have to know the doctrine or uh, the teaching. Now, the doctrine or the teaching of God's word doesn't change. So it remains the same, whether it's in the past or the present or, or, or the future. So that's the two problems with going back and studying history, church history. You add one more thing. <clears throat> Once you've got that down, the next question becomes, so how do we apply that to today if things have changed? Sense, you know, the decisions that were made, and so you have to figure out: Does this apply to us, or does it not? And how does it apply to us? Last class period, I was taking the immigration that came over. The Prussians came over with Grabau. The Saxons came over with Stefan. The Norwegians, and then we saw Klaus Clausen going up to Wisconsin, and and. Uh, Michigan, things of this sort, and, and we were taking a look at it. I read just a little bit of Graubau's Hirtenbrief, and we started to get into Wather's response, uh, which he didn't like it, and then we mentioned something called the transferal theory, or uh, the German word is Übertragungslehre. And uh, at, at that point, uh, all chaos ensued and, and confusion reigned. Thanks, Shirley. I want to back up a bit. Um, similar to my taking a look at pietism, I want to back up. I want to make sure that we've got the doctrine down. And we've got it down cold. As I said, it's going to remain the same. So that doctrine is not going to change. We're going to be taking a look at three things in particular. We're going to be taking a look at uh, the uh, congregation or the church. We're going to be taking a look at the ministry, the pastoral office. We're also going to be taking a look at... Uh, polity or church polity governance, how do you organize the church um, but I want to make sure to have the doctrine done then we'll go back and take a look at what they did then and, and how it has affected us today and hopefully and I think already last time you started to see just a little bit where pietism affected every one of these things. And that's not the only thing as we move forward. There's a couple other controversies that came that will come up. They also will go back to these things. So, I want to make sure we get the doctrine down. So we're going to stop. We're going to do a big overview and we're going to hit some of these things. You've got uh, white and pink sheets. Sorry, I had pink in the copier still. <laughs> so if you got a white or you got a pink one, they're all the same. You got three pages front and back. Uh, the blue one we probably won't get to today. Uh, we'll get to that next time. Uh, that deals with some more specifics. All right, before I go on, Pastor and then Mary. Well, I'm having the same problem here that I had with the sem at the seminary. Where are the Swedes in all of this? <laughs> the Swedes and, and I will say I, as I've already told you when we get to the Norwegians and the Swedes and, and, and I'm uh, um, takes me a whole lot more study to get myself up to speed on those but I will tell you um, the Norwegians as I've mentioned before pretty well follow the pietistic reign and they go right down the thing the Swedes it's hit and miss and you've got two groups of them. 
and I, I hope to get a little bit more of it. You've got some of them that fall in with the Norwegians, and you've got some of them pretty orthodox. that are really pretty orthodox. And I'll, so, for example, when we uh, uh, installed our uh, bishop, Bishop Heiser, the rite that we used was a uh, Swedish rite. Um, it's about the best one we got. So, you're right. It, it's one of those... I didn't... don't want to touch it yet, but that's exactly right. Um, that's a hard one to answer. When you say the doctrine is the only thing that remains the same, are you speaking of uh, orthodox doctrine, confessional doctrine, doctrine from the Augsburg Confession? And so, when you tell us what are the things these groups are doing, they you're telling us about... The variations they're taking away from that. So I got the Bible, which teaches us what we need to know. The Book of Concord, and it doesn't say everything, but where it speaks, its doctrine is taken from the Scriptures. So, this teaching remains the same because what Jesus taught us, and all, remains the same. Now, what we will find, historically, that there are some that have some false teaching or misleading teaching or whatever, and they'll try to say it came from the Book of Concord, and it didn't. So that's where things get confusing. There is not an area in which the devil doesn't mess everything up. And you have to understand that, you know. So what happens? Uh, um, we've got those who are saying, I believe what the Bible says, and then they don't hold to the Bible, so we have a confession to say, this is what we believe the Bible says, and then there's still some people that try to do that one. And so there are times in which, and even in our own, we, we try to minimize, but even in our own diocese, we have published some statements in which we've said, yes, we believe this, yes, we believe this, but there is some other stuff going on now here, and we've had to write two or three pages to say, this is what we hold to, and it agrees with, with this. So sometimes you just, I'm sorry, there's just not an area where you can't, the devil's not going to mess it up. Would it be better to say that true doctrine doesn't change? Because people do change doctrines, Yeah. But true doctrine does not change. Correct. Correct. Well, for me to understand it, that would have... Does that help? Yeah, I just okay. wanted to be sure. Just a perfect example of that, when I went to Concordia in Sioux, Nebraska, I had a professor tell me that a certain passage in that book of Concord, that that was referring to subjective and, objective and subjective justification. I've got the notes written on the side that that's what that means. Now you go back and look at it, it doesn't say anything about that, and it doesn't take into account faith. Obviously it was wrong, but he was telling me, Yep, that's what that means. But it obviously influenced your thinking for a while. Well, I didn't. I mean, and obviously, I, I didn't, so. No, okay. I she had this know. book in college. I see. She was in class, and the professor said that's what she wrote it on the side of her thing. She used this book of Concord, gave it to one of our kids for homeschool, uh-huh. and they're going... And after we have talked, they go, Mom, <laughs> your book says this. And Martin goes, give me that. You know, so you write down whatever the professor says. Did I believe that? No. Did you think about it much? No. I didn't think about it much. Unless maybe on the test, right? It might be on the test. When you're young, you don't go there. All right. Book of Concord. Augsburg Confession. Article 1. God. Triune God. Good place to start. Article 2. Original sin. Sin. The problem with sin. Article 3. The Son of God. Jesus Christ. True God and true man. The one who is to fix the problem of sin. I, I, I could have produced the entire Augsburg Confession for you. Obviously, we're trying to kind of get things down. Article 4. Alright? Justification. They teach also, they, this would be the Lutherans, so the Augsburg Confession is an article, or it is a document for the um, 
kings, princes, to present and say, this is what our uh, Lutheran pastors preach. They teach that men cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merit, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake by his death. He's made satisfaction for our sins. This faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight. So, Article 4 is about the promise of the gospel. What is the promise? The promise is that, for Christ's sake, people are forgiven. How does this happen? When they believe, the righteousness is imputed, that is, given to them. They don't have their own righteousness, not works, not merits. It's given to them. It happens by faith. Justification means being declared righteous. This is the chief article. Everything goes back to this. That shouldn't be anything. God, justification, by grace through faith. Article 5. That we may obtain this faith, this faith that makes us forgiven, that we might get it. You know, you want to be justified? Okay. God said, here's the way. This is, um, so if you're filling in your blanks, gospel, justification by faith. Now with Article 4, this is the means God uses to give us this, which is the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. For through the word and the sacraments, as through an instrument, it's a means, it's the thing that we use. If I'm trying to move dirt out of the hole, the instrument I use is the shovel. If I'm trying to get faith into your heart, I'm going to use the means of the pastoral office, the ministry of teaching and administering uh, the sacraments. So through the word, as, as through instruments, the Holy Ghost is given who works faith, where and when it pleases God, in them who hear the gospel. To wit, that God not for our own merits, but for Christ's sake, justifies those who believe when they are received into grace for Christ's sake. So that's what we have. They also say, okay, there were some people running around, we call them the Anabaptists. They were what Luther calls the fanatics. Um, they, uh, the, uh, the Lutherans condemn the Anabaptists and others who think the Holy Ghost comes to men without the external word, that is, without means, comes directly through their own preparations and works. So, the fanatics are ones where Luther said uh, uh, concerning uh, Thomas Munster that he was a preacher, and he said of him, he swallowed the Holy Ghost feathers and all. So, what did Munster say? Well, uh, uh, you know, it's not the word. That's, that's a dead word. God comes to us directly. No, no, no. That's, that's what you get. Um, that some of them went crazy even further, you know, that God can speak to them directly and, and all kinds of things. Okay. So, in order to get justification, here's the means God uses that we might obtain that faith and give, give uh, forgiveness. Good? Six. Um, six. New obedience. They teach faith is bound to bring forth good works. It's necessary to do them, not that we ought to rely on them, but this is what God does. Article 6. It doesn't really relate to all that we're going through right now, but faith and good works. They want to make sure, right? We're talking to the Roman church. We're wanting to say we're not saved by them, but we do produce them. And that's a good thing. Okay, we don't trust them. Article 7. Of the church. They, the Lutherans, teach that one holy church is to continue forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. So, there is a church. It's going to exist forever. Where do you find the church? Where can you find it? Well, you go where the gospel's rightly taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. And that's where you're going to find church. Article 7. 
In this box here, this is where the church is found. You want to find the church. You want to know where it is. This is where you will find it. Some other things. The true unity, it's, it's, uh, it's enough to agree on the doctrine of the gospel and the sacraments. All the human traditions and ceremonies, it's not necessary to agree on every one of those. Next thing. What the church is, Article 8. So we know where to find it. What is it? Although the church properly is the congregation of saints and true believers, that's what it is, nevertheless, since in this life many hypocrites and evil persons are mingled there within, it's lawful to use the sacraments administered by evil men according to the saying of Christ, the scribes and Pharisees said on Moses' seat, Matthew 23, 2, both the sacraments and the word are effectual, they have an effect, they work, by reason of the institution and command of Christ, notwithstanding they be administered by evil men. So, all right, um, what the church is? Well, properly, it's all the true believers. Yes, that's right. Uh, we need to know, though, that in this world, where the word and sacraments are, you're going to find true believers, but you're also going to find hypocrites, evil persons, and they will be there. And you can't dispute, I can't figure this out. Um, I can't tell, you know, are you a true believer? I can't look inside your heart. I can't check. You can't look inside my heart and check either. So, uh, when, when some people said, well, if you don't have a real believing pastor, then your baptisms and Lord's suppers aren't good. Well, we got a real one. That's okay. No, no. You, you say, I, that's not my concern. I know he's preaching. You know, he may be lying to me. He's, he tells me he believes. He is preaching the truth, and he's living. But, but inside his heart, I may. I'm just doing it for the money. And you may not know that, <laughs> right? But my baptisms are still good. Lord's supper is still good. Uh, the preaching is still good. When I preach to you and I bring you into membership, I don't know if you're lying or not. I'm going by what comes out of your mouth. And I'm making sure, you know, that, that your life relatively follows this, you know, but I, I don't know. So we can't figure that out. We don't need to figure that out. We do know that the church is made up of believers. Um, and even if you find out later that the pastor was an evil man or, or whatever, yeah, no problem, because, you know, it's the institution and all. Okay, so that's what we have with that one. Karn? Our faith is not in the faith of the pastor. Right. Our faith is in God's word and in the, in the gifts of the sacrament. Correct. But if you did have an evil pastor, I think it would just drive you back to the word and say, all right, let's see what he was saying. Was he, was he giving me the truth? Right. You know, but, yeah. Yeah, so you don't say, yeah, it's okay. We, we call an evil pastor because <laughs> it's okay. You know, I mean, no, you don't, I mean, you remove the guy if he is. But, but, uh, um. Okay, so I know what the church, uh, uh, I know where to find it. It's, it. It is where the gospels taught the sacraments are ministered. But the church is made up of believers. But I don't go to find believers to find the church. Because I, I can't do that. Again, faith I can't see. Article. I'm skipping over a couple of articles. We're going from 8 down to 14. Uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever. One deals with baptism, one deals with supper, one deals with sacrament. I mean, there's, there's some other articles to go with this. But. Because of the topics we're going on to, I'm going down to Article 14 of Ecclesiastical Order. They teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments unless he be regularly called. Sometimes this is called rightly called. Um, usually the Latin word that is thrown around is the retabocatus. A vocation, a right of vocation, unless he has been, and and we'll, we'll get a little bit more with this. Um, sometimes you use one term to refer to the whole. This is one of those times in which to be rightly called, regularly called, is to be uh, examined, elected, and ordained. 
we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But so here's what we have. We kind of have this overview. Um, here's the gospel. Here's the way it comes out. It creates good works after we're saved. You can find the church where the gospel and sacraments are. It's made up of believers. And we always place the man into the office, that office which God uses for preaching and teaching, by uh, being rightly called. I'm going to go on here to the Apology, the Augsburg Confession. That's all these articles. The Apology of the Augsburg Confession. After the Augsburg Confession went out, the Roman Church had a response. The Church then, Lutheran Church, had an apology, not we're sorry, but that means a defense, a defense of it. So, when we put this out, we they responded to us and said, well, you have to have canonical ordination. And we said, all right, here's our defense. Here's what we mean. Uh, page number two. Turn that over. Of ecclesiastical order, the 14th article, in which we say that that in the church, the administrator of the sacraments and word ought to be allowed no one unless he be rightly called. That's what we said. We don't want anyone preaching or teaching unless they are called into the office of pastor. Uh, they received, uh, they said with the proviso that we employ canonical organization, ordination, here's what the Lutheran says. Concerning this subject, we have frequently testified in this assembly, it's our greatest wish to maintain church polity and the graves in the old in the church, this would be the old church regulations, the government of bishops, etc., even though they have been made by human authority, with this provision, provided that the bishops allow our doctrine to receive our priests. For we know that church discipline was instituted by the church in the manner laid down in the ancient canons with a good and useful purpose. Okay, so they make this distinction um, is this. According to the Augsburg Confession, someone needs to be rightly called. We'll get to them examined, elected, and ordained. This happens by divine right. God says to do this. Um, we don't just say, oh, I don't know. How should we work this church thing? Um, you know, you want to preach or you want to preach? Well, let's just have one guy do it. And that'd work out real well. Um, no, no, no. It's by divine right that someone is to be placed into the pastoral office by these ways. But church polity, and we're going to get to that, this is the governance of the church. This is things like, how are we going to organize the church? How are we going to, uh, who's going to own the building? Who's going to determine when services are held? Who's going to... It, it's governance or, or, or polity. How is one pastor going to relate to another pastor? How is one congregation going to relate to another congregation? How is this going to work out? All church polity is by human rights. In other words, God never told us in the scriptures how we had to do it. He did say that we have to call and examine, elect, and ordain a man and make sure he preaches the word and administer the sacraments. But he never told us all the other stuff. That's all by human right, <clears throat> church polity. So, uh, um, you, you can't require it to be a certain way. And, and over time, the church has done it differently. We'll look at history and those things. But that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle. Um, I'm going to hold off on uh, that. You can see that there are kind of two things going on, church poly, grades and ministry. Grades and ministry just means that sometimes we take the pastoral office and within it we have grades, bishop, pastor, and deacon, and they do different things. That's all we mean by that. So we'll, we'll get to some of that. Shirley? <coughs> uh, where is the scripture that, that backs up about the ordained and examined and elected? I mean, I just want to know that. Good. I am getting to that. Absolutely. And we'll get, I'm going to pull out some of the passages that you can go to. Um, I'm probably not going to spend a lot of time, but I've got in my notes to make sure that you, that you circle those and kind of get those. Tony. So where does the seminaries come into play? Everyone we've studied has been fraught. And again, I understand the devil works everywhere. 
but it, everyone that you have talked about in the last several weeks has been fraught with all kinds of things. Right. So, sometimes, most, most boil it down to these three. When I'm talking examined, what are they examined for? Well, they're teaching that, so together with this would be taught and examined. That would all come under kind of the examined, because we want to examine to make sure that, how did this happen? Did they go to seminary? Did they study underneath another pastor? How did this work out? Taught and examined. The next one is elected, and just to expand on that one as well, sometimes with elected, uh, it's like Paul going and telling Timothy, go and appoint a pastor in that place. Sometimes it happens by the congregation uh, uh, having a voters meeting and, and uh, having four names and voting until they have one and say, you know, that, um, that all includes this kind of electing, appointing, and, and, and all. The last part dealing with ordination has to do with the other pastors who are in the ministry, that they would, um, and they also kind of examine the guy as well, but the point being is that they may examine him, and then they will approve of him. This ordination is the church sending, and usually ordination means being sent. Um, and so there is a, 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 a making sure he's fit, there is kind of the reception and uh, uh, approval of the laity, and there's the reception and the approval of the pastors. So that the whole church works together in, in doing this. I remember this uh, very well. Thirty-some years ago. Yeah! Uh, <laughs> mother and fathers in Melbourne. Ooh! Girlfriends in Grand Tower. How's this the divine call? Ah. Ah. So sometimes, I, I give you an example. Yeah, so 30 years I was uh, called by this congregation. Um, you uh, had a document in which you said to the seminary, uh, anyone who has been examined and approved, that uh, we will receive him as our, our pastor. Um, they then put a name into that call document that, that you sent to them, uh, of which you then received that and said yes. Um, the question sometimes, parents go, well, you know, he, he, he lived in Mount Vernon. We're going to have a big you, service there. You didn't like North Dakota. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't get a call in North Dakota, okay. but you might get one there. Um, we have a service here, an ordination service, because this is the place in which the pastors came and laid hands upon me and this ordination. The call came here, and thus the ordination happens here. They all happen here together. Um, and, and that was done to put me divinely into that office. So when you say to me, well, who made you pastor? God did. Um, there may have been a point back here where I said, yeah, I'd kind of like to be pastor somewhere. Um, but I don't know until God sends me a call. And that's the way it happens. It's probably relevant. Just, does the Catholic Church have a call process? Or do they just place whatever pastor they want in that church and, they, and you deal with it? Mm -hmm. Easily, or, or let me just say, I'm going to speak broadly. Absolutely. They have seminaries. Ordination is only the, the only person that can put people into the office is the Pope. He holds the ordination. Mm -hmm. And so you may even have your, quote, ordination service with 30 other guys in Rome. And then you come. But do they call the pastor or do they just place a pastor and the congregation has no say? They place them. Mm -hmm. So they don't now, really have a call. Probably. Technically speaking... When the guy comes, you know, if if they let him come, that was their approval. Technically. Do they have a say so? Yeah, well, no. Um, it all depends. I, I mean, te technically, doctrinally, whatever, they would say no, this is the way it is. You know, if you don't accept the guy, you're rejecting the Pope and the Roman Catholic, and they, and they wouldn't. Uh, in reality... 
it all depends on who holds the money. <laughs> if you got the money, you might be able to tell the bishop, you know what? And 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 here's the thing right now, they got such a, a shortage. You know, we're getting ready to send you a guy from Africa, and we really can't understand him because of his the accent. Um, you know, you may get the guy. If you got the money, you might be able to say, no, we're not, we want. And they'll follow. It, it all depends. So anyway, you got that. Tony? Yeah, two things. When I was in Osage, we got a, a priest that was assigned to us. His primary task was to build up the congregation. As soon as he got to build it up, they pulled him out and sent him to Cedar Rapids to do the same thing. <laughs> <coughs> we didn't have any. Oh, he got a new priest. Fine, that's taken care of. Now, when I was in the Ponset, we had a Methodist. We only had two congregations. One was a Methodist. All of a sudden, he's gone. Well, I didn't hear any uh, controversy. This so I talked to the to the new one. He says, "Well." Normally, what happens is you're in a congregation about four or five years, and then since they don't want you to become too comfortable there, they just all of a sudden shoot and shuffle everybody around. Mm. Now, I don't know any further than that, but that's what I was told. Mm. Yep, that's pretty typical. Brian? I think your dad's question was, with your call... Sure, seemed like there was a lot of human influence in it. <laughs> so was it really a divine call, or was this humanly? Honestly, though, we were really both of us were ready to pack up and go anywhere. I was going to quit my job, go anywhere in the United States, and follow you. It was the district president who said, "Hey, I want that guy to stay in my district." There's a but call service in May, and when the seminarians go into that, they have no idea where they're going. And they tell you, here's where you're going. And 99.9% .9 of the time, you know, that is what happens. And that's the way it is. Is there a human process? Well, just like there's an election and just like there's whatever. God works through means in order to do it. He doesn't do it directly. How come I'm your pastor? God told me to be your pastor. You know, that's immediate. That's direct. No, no. God works through means. And, and there are people. You don't. You don't want to subvert the process, um, finagle it, try to get in the way of it. But, I, I mean, I will tell you that uh, what happens. The seminary uh, interviews you. They interview the congregations. They try to make sure that it is, quote, a good match, that, that, that it would work out. Um, as well as district presidents then have congregations in which they bring the call documents and bring them to the seminary and say, here's the congregations that would like seminarians. So they try to work it out. Uh, what's part of the human process? Part of the human process is this. If that seminarian came out of your district, that district president, if he wants, it's an unwritten rule, can say, yeah, Henson came out of Mount Vernon. I want him put right back in Southern Illinois District. And he made it happen. Um, I can tell you there were some other things going on, and I'm, I know that uh, uh, Mrs. Hennig and, and, and you know, whatever, in which the district president, you know, worked things out. But those are human things that happen. We visit him often. <laughs> I would take Mrs. Henning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And we can talk about that. Later. So, we're, we're getting far afield of where you want to go, I know, but since we got this going, my curious mind says, have you ever had seminarians who were disabled, for instance? This is the most obvious thing that occurs to me. So, if we were to have uh, a seminarian who is now graduated, and uh, uh, he's in a wheelchair. How, without the devil getting involved, can we be sure that this guy doesn't come here, for instance, where we don't have a way of getting him getting in and out so he can do his work? So, two parts, and you're just simply, you know, are there instances, and they're very rare, in which, you know, and that may be, let me just use that as an example, that may be an example where you look at this and kind of say, we set this all up, but even after the fact, we look at this and say, yeah, that's just not going to work, we are not wheelchair, you know, it just, it's unable to happen, now, I don't know if that's the best one, but, right. but there are instances in which something has changed, and it's, and, and for the good, they realize um, 
On the other hand, I'm going to say, in the May call meeting, when it's announced, you know, that, uh, you know, John Schmidt is going to nowhere South Dakota, you know, there are instances in which the wife wails in the congregation. <laughs> 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 you know. uh, um, and, you know, they don't want that to be the determining factor, you know. Uh, and so, again, most of the time, there's no reason why. They've already done their work. There's no reason why. You don't take that call. And as it is said before, realizing that the place where God places you, you know, is the greatest place on earth. Why? Because that's where he placed you. And that's what you do. And I was just thinking just because there's human influence, it doesn't mean the humans probably don't have a pure motive, but they might have a partially good motive. <laughs> sure. Sure. But the point being is that there is a call process. It involves examination, call, and ordination. And those those involve humans, and that's the way things happen. Um, you know, and we always point back to that. So that when when I you know when I told somebody you know I'm I'm going to Trinity here and I'm gonna I'm gonna be their pastor, and they said so uh, so I, have you been called? And I go. Well, yeah. No, no. I mean, have you been called by God? Oh. And I go, well, yeah, I got a call document. They elected. No. What? What do they really mean? Did you hear a little voice? <laughs> you know, did you have this emotional, you know, and, and, and I, no, that's not what we go to. This is the process, you know, uh, that we have. Um, the scriptures describe, um, you know, it is, it is good for a man to desire the work of ministry. Okay? I know of a couple sons of mine who desire the work of ministry. Whether God wants them to be pastors or not, we don't know yet. In about a year, they're going to, God willing, receive a call. That's, you know, the calling. This before is just, yeah, I got an inkling. So, well, go study and let's see what happens. <clears throat> there have been men who have studied, who have been approved, and never received a call. That's up to the Holy Spirit. That's up to God. I, I... All right. This is the overview. This is the way that things work. This is the doctrine, the teaching. And again, part of the teaching is um, lined out by God. Some of it, our teaching is, God didn't line this out. Concerning church polity and grades of ministry, that, that, you can do that any way you want. God didn't say it has to be that way. And therefore, we don't require it. Going on to page... And, and so, top of page two, you fill in the blanks. Um, this is by divine right. This is simply church polity is human right. That being said, what did the Lutherans say about church polity? Let me do. You know, no, they say that we got to have something, right? They you got to have something. What we've got is pretty good. That's exactly what they said. You know, it's our greatest wish. It's our desire not to change the polity. We we would like to keep it the same as it is. When the Lutherans. Again, why did we have this uproar? Well, the doctrine had changed. And they say, oh, you radical Lutherans, you just want to change everything. We go, no, no, no. We would have no trouble remaining with uh, pastors and bishops, even to have a pope who is, who is over. We would have no trouble. In fact, we would love to keep that. Our problem is not with the polity. Our problem is with the doctrine. It's our greatest wish to keep the maintain the church polity and to keep deacon and pastors and bishop. That's what we would like. In fact, we know, even though it's by human authority, we'd still like to keep it, provided if they would allow our doctrine and let our pastors preach, we, we, no problem. And we know that church discipline was instituted by the fathers and the manners laid down in the ancient canons. Why? It was a good and a useful purpose. So we'd like to keep it. That's what the Lutherans said. What did we find? That the early Lutherans did keep it. They kept the church orders. They kept the distinctions. 
uh, they still had bishops, sometimes they called them superintendents. They kept this until we got to America. You can't see where I'm going. Shirley? Back to the call. What about a pastor that turns out to be an evil pastor? Who what? What about a pastor that turns out to be a not-so-good pastor, evil pastor? Was he? Was the call... Um, if you find that a person who has been placed in the office of pastor, that he is either preaching false doctrine or leading an immoral life, he is to be removed from that office. And so when we talk about this, we say, if it's by divine right that God places him in, then it's by divine right that God removes him. And the way that God removes him, and there is a process, just like there's a means of putting him in, the means of removing him is, the pastors who are in there are also to watch over and the congregation is to remove him and say, no, you're no longer our pastor. It's well, before these faces. But was the original call a call from God? Absolutely. Even though he was this type yep. of person? Correct. Um, and, and so, yes, we say that that is... Uh, um, a, you know, because that's the way it works. But you then remove him from that office. Um, now, the uh, the other thing goes with this. You know, what if you get a guy in the office and he preaches well and he's not immoral, but his wife, <laughs> you know, she 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 wears pants instead of dresses. <laughs> Can you remove him from office? No. My point is is that this is not a human thing. So any other thing is human. Put up with it. If it's those two things, preaching and and up, you remove him. And God will remove him from that. That's what happens. Jonathan. This would be kind of like uh, God calling... This is not the pastoral office, but God called Saul to be the king of Israel, and then, you know, Saul went corrupt, and then now he elected David to be king. If any of you have been reading our family daily prayers, and you've been reading the Old Testament reading, it's been dealing with David and Saul and all of this, and yes, Saul's in the office, God's told David you're going to be there, and they keep saying to David, oh, you got a chance, why don't you kill him? And David goes, listen, God removes the king. From his office. Until that happens, perfect example. I and, and that's why he doesn't do those things. Very good. Aletha. We had a situation at West Frankfurt, Pastor Easter House, and he had part was part of the Seminex movement. He was there for quite a while. Mm-hmm. He got us off off the beaten path. We had that we had a congregational meeting to remove him. Either well, either stay there or leave the Senate. That was our choice. That's exactly what needs to happen. Exactly what needs to happen. <coughs> and I would say that, you know, I was a circuit counselor, so I dealt with Southern Illinois, our circuit and all, and I'm going to say most every congregation has had to deal with false doctrine or immoral living with their pastor. I hate to tell you that, but each one of these congregations had, to, this congregation had to deal with it. Um, and that's the way it's done. You bring it to, you know, the congregation that calls and say, okay, here's the, you know, here's the thing. Is it false teaching? You know, now you're making an association with Seminex, a wrong place, or immoral life. You know, we hold the pastor in high regard, but these two things take him out of the pastoral office. He can be forgiven. He can be a forgiven layman, but he is not in the pastoral office. Then. He needs to be removed. Immoral living or false teaching. He ended up with it. And what? He ended up in the ELCA. He ended up in the (laughs) Again, the devil works out everything so that, you know, oh, yeah, but I'm still a pastor and someone else, you know. I mean, mean, it would be great if if there was one church so that we all spoke together. And, you know, if, you know, layman or pastor, if someone, you know, said something, no, but what happens? Oh, I just go down the street, and the pastor down there will commune me and take me in, and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you don't like that doctrine? We'll just find a pastor that does it. Um, all right. I got uh, divine and human, as we said. Uh, the Lutheran said, you know, we'll gladly maintain it if we can. Um, and that's what they tried to do. Going on down, Apology Article 28. 
dealing with ecclesiastical power. There have been great controversy concerning the power of bishops in which some have awkwardly confounded the power of the church and the power of the sword. Okay, this article is about this. There is the power of the sword, which is given to the government to make laws and to punish evil, to protect property and body. There is the power of the word, or the, the bishop, we're going to get to that, which is to preach the word and minister the sacraments. This article is trying to explain these two things are both gifts of God. God gave us the government and he gave us the church. If you want to talk about state and church, this is exactly you know, the distinction that we're making here. Why was this article necessary? Because there were some men who functioned... I happen to be the mayor, and I am the bishop. And so the, the Lutherans said, okay, it's possible that the guy's, but he's got two different things going on, and let's make sure we distinguish those. Or the Pope was coming and saying, well, because of what's going on in there, I'm going to remove you as mayor. And we go, you can't do that as Pope. He's in the government. You have no authority over it. You know, I mean, these are two. So that's why it was set up. You've got the power of the sword, which is the... Oh, oh I did it this way. We've got the power of the sword, which is the civil government. Okay? Then you have got, and as they say here, the difference between the power of the church and the power of the sword. Uh, they're both God's command, they're Elton Roberts and honor the chief blessings, but they're different. And so, what I want to get you to is not so much arguing about this distinction, but when they talk about this half, here's what they say. They say things like, the power of the church is to, and they will list three things. Preach the word, forgive and retain sins, and administer the sacraments. These three things, whenever they talk about what's been given to the church to do, and particularly when we talk about the power of the church, they're going to say the power of the keys, and then they're going to talk about the power of the bishops, and then later they're going to call it the ministry of the word, or sometimes the ministry of the word and the sacraments. They're talking about all these things interchangeably. So that, what's gone? The pastoral office, the power of the all the ministry, it's all been given to the church. And what does what does the pastor do? He preaches the word, forgives, retains, sins, administers the sacrament. So down here. But this is their opinion that the power of the keys or the power of the bishops, according to the gospel, is a power or command of God to preach the gospel, remit and retain sins to administer sacraments. Those three things. Sometimes we just say word and sacrament. And when we say that, we mean that the remit and retain sins kind of goes with the preaching. And so sometimes we, we do it. There are some times that we just say, well, the pastor is the minister of the word. You kind of go, what about sacraments? Well, yeah, because he's doing that. Doing that you know, so sometimes we put that here. But those are the three. Note how it says this. This power, power of bishops, power of the keys, power of the church, the office of the minister, whatever, is exercised only by teaching or preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments according to their calling, either to many or to individuals. This power is exercised only by that. For thereby are granted not a uh, uh, not bodily, but eternal things, as eternal righteousness, holy ghost, eternal life. These things cannot come but by the ministry of the word and the sacraments. Therefore, since the power of the church grants eternal things and is exercised only by the ministry of the word, only by the ministry of the word, it doesn't interfere with the government and, and any more than singing interferes with the government. What are they saying? They're saying that this, the church has been given this pastoral office to do stuff. And it does this stuff. And this stuff that it does, the only way that we can get all this gospel, forgiveness of sins, whatsoever, is by putting someone in the office. And so they're uh, uh, telling us that's what we mean. My big point with this is twofold. One, 
that you know what the pastor is supposed to do. These are his, this is his job. This is his fun. These are the things he has to do. But the other thing is this. As we move forward, and we're going to talk about uh, uh, how in history things got messed up, they're going to start saying that these things are not the same. They're going to start saying things like, well, uh, uh, the ministry is not the pastoral office. Everybody's a minister. Everybody. And instead of saying that the keys, the power of the keys have been given to the pastoral life, well, no, 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 I think everybody has the, the keys. And, and then they're going to start telling us that, well, preaching the word, yeah, no, yeah, that's okay if laymen do And everybody preaches the word, it's just sometimes we get the pastor and, 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 uh, um, and, and they're going to say that, no, 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 all of this belongs to the church, not to the pastor. But what we find is that in the apology, as they're explaining these things, they explain it quite clearly that this has been given to the church so that this happens. And when this happens, it creates faith, which makes believers. Right. I don't think they say that everybody has the keys. I think they say there are no keys. Nobody has the right as a human to forgive or retain sins. Oh, yeah, they do that. There's actually two. Okay, some say that. Yeah. Some say that. Only God can forgive sin. The pastor can. Yeah. Most of what we're used to dealing with um, in our context is those that say that. Within Lutheranism, they normally don't argue there's no keys. They normally argue that. Yeah, you have the keys, you have the keys, you have the keys, you have the keys. You have the keys. Um, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain just a little bit without, I want, I want to make sure the doctrine's down before we go on to the aberrations of it. Because if I start giving you that, you're, you're kind of go, well, I thought that was a, a little, little different. Um, I want to make sure we kind of get it down before we get to it. But that's the problem. And we're going to see that when pietism came in, and with the uh, what follows after this, uh, that there's going to be arguments about this. All right, Tony, Prohaska? Yeah, uh, they don't understand or misinterpreting the Bible. Just to listen to what Jesus said, and it was to his disciples about confession or uh, absolution. And the other thing is, remember the, uh, the multitudes that were fed and so forth, when Jesus dismissed him, did he say, now go and preach? Or did he retain that to his disciples? Perfect. What a segue. Shirley, you ready to circle the Bible passages? Yes. All right, of page two. What do we have? John 20, 21. Tony Baraska just said, what happened? Jesus, on the night, uh, uh, on the night of his resurrection came to the who? The apostles that were gathered and told them, as my father sent me, so I am sending you to receive the Holy Spirit and to tell them what? Forgive and retain sins. He gave it to them to do. Um, Mark 16, top of page 3, circle that passage. Mark 16, 15, go and preach the gospel to every creature. This is not that which is given to all um, it is given to the pastoral office so that wherever the church is, you have a pastor's priest in the gospel. Shirley, right above this, I want you to write the words, or write the passage, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Um, I was looking through, I didn't actually find it in the ones that I quoted, but again, I'm pulling different ones out. What does Matthew 28, 18 to 20 say? Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the end of the age. Mm-hmm. Matthew 28, 18-20, that is given to the pastors. It's to the eleven that were there. Uh, Judas had killed himself, and it said, so to the eleven he said this. That is pastoral office Bible passages that, that we pull out and we say, aha, that, that proves it. Just quickly, when I was in high school, 
when the uh, when the <coughs> church growth movement and and things were Missouri was was really starting to take a hard you know a turn. They had something called the Great Commission Convocation. Matthew 28, 18-20 is called the Great Commission. The Great Sending Out. So this Great Commission Convocation, what was it? It was a uh, meeting in St. Louis at the Cervantes Center, a whole thing, and we sent all of these laity there to go to workshops so that they could make disciples. Wait a minute. The Great Commission was for the past. No, no, no. They had misinterpreted it and said it's for all of us and everybody is to do this. And that's what needed to happen. And so you had this for four or five years, this Great Commission Convocation and this going on. Um, to kind of put the... the, the <laughs> to explain this, when I was done with seminary, you get done with seminary, you got your four years of seminary, you have a... I don't even think they do this anymore. They have a theological interview. This is the last one. Okay? Three seminary professors. You go into a room, and they can question you on anything, and this is where they give you the final approval on what's going on with this. One of the seminary professors asked me a question about the Great Commission Convocation and laity at it, to which I... Uh, answered probably not as good as I could have but I, I, I understood the issue and and so I, I said something like well you know uh, um, pastors preach and teach but 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 laymen in their vocation you know are supposed to tell people and, and you know I, I, I kind of kind of made sure I didn't go too after I responded with my answer, these three professors argued in front of me for the next 15 minutes. <laughs> As one of them said, you know, this is the pastor, and the other one said, well, no, 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 no. And, they are, and I sat there for 15 minutes going, <laughs> like this. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, and I, yeah, I can tell you, but, but I know which professor asked this, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And this wasn't about teaching me. This was about... <laughs> And, and when, after they got done, you know, they kind of like looked at each other like, oh, that guy's still here. Okay, well, you're fine. You're doing good. Uh, we'll prove you. And, and, you know, they kind of went on. Because they didn't, they didn't, in other words, this was not settled. Um, and I've never forgot that. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. The point being, again, if this happens, it happens because of the pastoral office. That's the way it's set up. And that's the way uh, the Lutherans have always understood this uh, to be. Um, middle of page three, Shirley. <laughs> no wonder I'm so confused. Because, you know, I attended that Great Commission convocation. I remember that. So, see, I've, I've had the Lutherans presented to me both, both sides. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, Shirley, under this one, sir, under middle of page three, uh, under about twenty-two, Luke ten verse sixteen. Hear that you, he that heareth you heareth me. Jesus was talking to the apostles, saying, "You're going out as my representative." You know, when they listen to you, they're listening to me. When they don't listen to you, they're not listening to me. Um, this is another one of those passages that talk about the pastoral office. Pastor? Well, this this misinterpretation of Matthew 28, that's fundamental to pietism. So this mm -hmm. connects us back to this connects us back to what we were studying a couple of weeks ago is pietism. That's fundamental to pietism because you have to have everybody involved in pietism. Because if you don't have everybody involved in it, then how can you tell the good from the bad? Very good. That's exactly right. Um, let me hit the last thing because we're out of time. Um, 
Number 30 under that apology article. Moreover, it is disputed whether bishops or pastors have the right to introduce ceremonies in the church to make laws concerning meats, holy days, graves, that is, orders of ministers, etc. Um, they said, okay, we understand that pastors are to preach the word of God, and that's what they have to do, and it has to be true and right. What about stuff that's, that's not necessarily the word of God? What about stuff like... Uh, um, are we going to eat meat on Friday? Uh, what about, are we going to have a holy day this Monday, or are we, can we do it on Tuesday? You know, what about having distinctions between this guy's going to be a bishop or this guy is going to be a deacon? What about these kind of things? As they went through, they said, let's make it clear, pastors have no right to institute anything contrary to the gospel. Now, on that uh, let me give you the far-up example. If I say, well, I'm the pastor, and we are going to offer sacrifices to Baal. <laughs> okay, so, you know, obviously that's contrary to the gospel. God. But if I say to you this, I say, you know, we are going to have, um, uh, during Lent, we're not going to eat meat on Friday, and you have to do this in order to be saved. If you don't do this, it is sin. And you're going to have to confess it before you can come to Lord's Supper. Um, so what I've done is, I've taken something that in and of itself isn't a problem. You know, we can eat meat or not meat. You can have, you know. Uh, um, but if I tell you that it is required for salvation, or if I tell you that it is sin and will bind your conscience, that is also instituting things contrary to the gospel. Pastors are not allowed to do that. We can have certain things, and as we kind of go on, we can come back to this because I know I'm at the end. Paragraph 53. What are then do we think of Sunday and, and like rights in the church? The Lutherans answer, to this we answer that it is lawful for bishop or pastors to make ordinances that things be done orderly in the church. Of course. Not that thereby we should merit grace or make satisfactions for sins or that consciences be bound to judge them as necessary services and to think that it is a sin to break them. No, if, if those things, then it doesn't allow. But provided we're not doing all of that, it's all right to make ordinances that they be done orderly um, without offense to others. St. Paul ordains in 1 Corinthians 11 that women should cover their heads in the congregation, that they would have a head covering. Um, 1 Corinthians 14.30 says that interpreters be heard in order in the church. Um, these are simply things done in the church so that there might be order and no confusion. That is allowed. And they say, no, pastors can do that. Um, of course, don't, don't do that. To just give you an example, um, uh, um, let's say um, uh, we have church at 10.15. We could have church at 11.15. It's, it doesn't require sin. It's not. It's, it's simply uh, um, that we uh, maybe this Sunday would start with the introit because we uh, uh, it's in the Easter season. We decide yeah, that's possible. You could set that up. Um, pastors have the right to do that. Um, why is that? It's simply for good order. It's so that there's not confusion. To give you an analogy to this. The analogy would be a human father with his children. Obviously, there are certain things that are required. He's to be married to his wife. He is to provide for them. Um, he is not to abuse them. You would say, yeah, yeah, that's divine right. Okay. What if I decide, as human father, that our bedtime is 8 o'clock for the kids? Is that... Is it sin if they don't go, you know? No, and the father next door, he may have decided 8.30. But in our household, for the sake of order, that's what we set up. You're allowed to do that as a, as a father. Um, uh, that gives you a, just a little bit of a kind of analogy. There are things that we do all the time that are, it's not a matter of sin or not sin. It's simply a matter of, you know what? We're, you know, we're having meatloaf on Tuesdays. That's just what our household does. Okay, we'll do that. That's the kind of thing that they're talking about here. Ordinances done orderly for the sake of love and tranquility. 
when we do those kind of things, yes, it's been given to those who, who have authority. Most of the time, because it's not a matter of right and wrong, we usually have a little give and take. We, we, we ask, you know, uh, honey, you think they ought to go to bed at 8 or not? Well, I don't know. Maybe not tonight. Okay, maybe we won't. Um, we're all, you know, uh, uh, going to go on a hike today. Um, so you, 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 you figure it out. But someone finally has to decide, what are we going to do? Um, it, it's been given. Um, they are to manage the household of God. We kind of like the a, a translation of the Bible. It's helpful for all using the translation. It just it, it's helpful. But you know what? If you don't have the money to buy new Bibles or to change everything, well, all right, we'll work with you. And, and there's a little give and take on that. All right. That gives me the overview, kind of hit some of the things. Hopefully that's it. You've got this in front of you. Next time, we're going to move forward, and I'm going to uh, begin to show you some of the things that were going, what was the issues that were going on, what different people said, and then you can judge for yourself how, how this worked out. Historically. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that by the teaching of your word, we sh you show us what is your will and uh, what may be left open for uh, uh, human liberty. We ask, dear Lord, uh, that we might never be uh, taken away from your word, but trusting in your Son, uh, that we might receive uh, eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.